John has been on our board for the last two or three years and has really brought great wisdom and uh, excellent spirit to our board. So thank you for lending him to us. We appreciate that very much. I work uh, with Asia Biblical Theological Seminary. It's a mouthful, for sure. We're a ministry of Cornerstone University, just to the west of here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they are their overseas seminary, the sister school of Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. And I've been with ABTS since 2001, have lived in Asia since 2004, and it's a great privilege, an exciting time to be in Asia. In that part of the world, 26,000 people are coming to Christ every day. That's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's exciting to see the Spirit moving in that way in building Christ's church in Asia. In fact, many theologians and scholars are saying the center of the church is moving from the west and the north to the south and the east, and we see that happening in Asia. Uh, while that's a great number, there are some disadvantages to that, and the biggest one is only 5% of pastors have any kind of training in Asia. Only 5%. So who is discipling these 26,000 converts that are coming to Christ every day? Who is leading them into maturity, into understanding God's word, into being growing Christians? And that's really the concern of ABTS. That's why we've been there for over 30 years, is to help bring leadership training to disciple these new converts to help build Christ's church in Asia. Well, I do have a brief video uh, that, I want, that will introduce ABTS, and we'll show that right now. At Cornerstone University, we're committed to the transforming power of the gospel. And since the gospel is so wonderfully transcultural, we believe that doing it on a global basis is a high honor. And I guess that's one of the reasons why we are so delighted to be a part of the ministry of Asia Biblical Theological Seminary and uh, to serve ABTS by offering the credentials of a fully accredited degree from Cornerstone University. Uh, we love to think of students all over the world and especially on the Asia Rim uh, being theologically educated, not so they can become more intelligent, but because they can become more effective in taking the gospel into their culture. So uh, to be a part of ABTS is a great honor for us at Cornerstone University. ABTS was founded in 1982 when Dr. John Lillis moved to Thailand and he encountered two primary challenges when he came here. The first one, there were very few schools offering uh, master's level degrees in theological education. And the second one are those who did need a master's degree in ministry were traveling to other places like America or Europe, spending a great deal of money, leaving family and ministry in order to get a U.S. education. And so this gave Dr. Lillis an idea. Uh, the idea was, what if we partnered with a school in America, Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and brought a U.S. education to Asia? And so ABTS offered its first classes in 1983 in Bangkok, Thailand. At ABTS, we prefer a seminar style, and our students seem to really benefit because the seminar emphasizes interaction with the other students, interaction with the professor, students should expect in-depth Bible study. Uh, we expect our students to be able to think biblically and critically for their ministry context. And a high priority for us is to instill this biblical thinking 
in our students. So one of the things I appreciate about the classes so much is that they are very practical. Uh, I mean, we're learning these doctrines, we're learning these truths, not just learn these doctrines, but all right, how are you going to teach these doctrines to your people in their setting? The mission of ABTS is simple, and that is to provide a U.S. accredited theological education for church leaders and lay professionals in Asia. And we do that by combining the best of the East and the West. Our professors come from the most reputable schools and seminaries in America, but they have considerable experience in Asia, and all of their classes are relevant to Asian ministry and work contexts. ABTS just offers classes that are just alive and relevant in our lives, in my life. We have two top priorities for how we developed our program. The first one is that it's affordable. Over three quarters of our students receive significant scholarships to study at ABTS. Some of them paying only 5% of what a student in America would pay for the same education. And the second priority is accessibility. We want to make sure that our students can take classes while remaining in their ministry context. So all of our classes are in modular condensed format and our professors are traveling to nine different locations throughout Asia so that our students can stay where they are and apply the material that they're learning immediately in their ministry context. Looking at ABTS and other programs, I felt ABTS is a very modular structure which I enjoy very much because they give me a pretty good selection of pastoral focus, missionaries, education, intercultural, and also what we call marketplace. Oh, one of the biggest benefits of having ABTS here in Chiang Mai is not only does it make it very convenient for us who are having ministries here, it's part of the community. How it's helping my ministry is that it's helping me grow in my spiritual walk with God. Needless to say, since Cornerstone is a Christ-centered university, we have a great passion for taking Jesus Christ all around the globe. And to be a part of ABTS kind of fulfills that passion for us. And the thing we love about ABTS is that we kind of put wheels on theological education, that we take it out where people are and uh, people don't have to quit their jobs and uproot their families, but we bring it to them. And in bringing it to them on location, uh, we are much more uh, capable of bending it and bringing it into their own cultural setting. And so there are so many reasons that we think ABTS is effective, but I think at the top it's that portability of theological education, bringing it right into someone's territory and enculturating it right where they are so that they can receive the blessing and then take the blessing out to the people in their local settings. That's a little introduction to ABTS. Uh, we currently have 247 students uh, studying with us and over 300 graduates since 1983. And what makes our program so exciting is the multiple nationalities that it represents, over 20 nationalities of our stu current students. In Chiang Mai, as we hold classes there, some of our most diverse classes, it's not uncommon to have 15 students in your class representing 11 different nations. Can you imagine the discussion that takes place in a classroom like that? Uh, I wish I had that when I was in seminary. Most of our students are, are adults. We do adult learning. Our average age is 40 years old, 
And these are students who are coming not to prepare for ministry, but to be equipped, further equipped for ministry. They have years of experience as pastors and missionaries and teachers, and they come into the class eager to learn with questions to ask. It's a very exciting place to teach. And as you have the interaction and the discussion, a lot of times the students are doing most of the teaching <laughs> because they have that experience. And as soon as the class is over, they go back to their ministries and they immediately apply what they've learned. It's really a, a unique model uh, for education, theological education, bringing the education to them in their settings, in their context. ABTS started in 83, and it really started because in Asia, there was a need for theological education. And here in the US, we had plentiful resources in theological education. So really it began with a view of the church. It began with an idea that the church is bigger than just a local church. It's bigger than just a city. It's bigger than even a country. That Christ church is global. And if Christ church is global, we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters around the world. That's really why ABTS began. And that's something I'd like to explore with you this morning in God's word from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. The idea of what it means to be part of a global church. In 1 Peter, he's writing to a group of aliens. He calls them aliens and strangers. In verse 1, he says they are a diaspora. They're scattered around Asia. The church that he's writing to is a very small minority group in the area of Asia. And these people are beleaguered. They are suffering. They have experienced a significant amount of persecution, primarily in social ridicule. They stick out in their communities. And as a small group whose values do, do not align with that of the predominant Roman values, they're starting to feel a little bit like, why are we doing this? Who are we as the church? How come we don't fit in with our society anymore? And so as Peter is writing to this group of aliens, he's wanting to give them a solid, firm identity in Christ. He wants to tell them who they are. So in chapter 1, he talks about the importance of their rebirth, how they are born again to something that is imperishable, that they have a future in heaven with Christ. And in chapter 2, he talks about the church as like a, a temple. He uses the image of the Old Testament temple and says that Christians are like living stones being put together into a spiritual house. And obviously, when you're put together into a house, that has to do with unity with one another. And Christ himself is the cornerstone. But the verses I want to look at with you today is in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. And it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are some unique verses in Scripture. In these two verses, we have the most dense uh, verses of identifiers anywhere in Scripture, with no less than nine Old Testament references. 
So Peter, in telling this church who they are, is almost taking a machine gun approach, giving them name after name after name and saying, this is who you are. Well, we don't have time this morning to look at all of them, but I want to highlight three of these identifiers and think about what that means in terms of the global church. The first one, he says, is you are a chosen people. Now, this is the NIV. In some other versions, it says you are a chosen race. This uh, phrase comes from Isaiah 43, verse 20. Israel was a race of people, right? They were the physical descendants of Abraham. And as God called them out of Israel, he made them his own so that they are chosen. And the idea behind this is that Israel, as a literal race of people, are chosen by God to be his. Obviously, race here has to do with exactly what we would think in terms of race. It has to do with your descent, your kinship, where you're from, your physical features. And for the Israelites, to be a chosen race was very literal. It's interesting that Peter's using this here for the church. The second term he uses, and I want to skip one and go over to a holy nation. This term comes from Exodus chapter 19. And the word for nation is often translated in scripture as Gentiles. It's the word ethnos, where we get our word ethnic. And oftentimes in scripture, it's used of people who are on the outside. The nations surrounding Israel. Those other people. The ones that Israel is not supposed to be like. And usually the Gentiles are a contrast group for Israel. So Israel's supposed to be this way instead of that way of the Gentiles. But here, holy nation coming from Exodus 19 is talking about Israel. See, in many ways, Israel was a nation like the other nations. They were a group of people. They had a language. They had their own culture, their own food. They had their land. They had a government system. So if you were to look at Israel, you would say, well, you're just like these other nations. But what makes them separate, what makes them unique, is that they're to be holy. They're to be set apart. And of course, as you know your Old Testament story, that means they're to be followers of the law. Their God is suppo they're supposed to be following their God. And so Israel is a holy nation set apart from the Gentiles. So they're a chosen race, a holy nation, and then finally, a people belonging to God. This term for people is the most common word used in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. When you say people of Israel, that's this term right here. And it says they are a special people that belong to God. They are a people for God's own possession coming from Exodus chapter 19. So the picture that Peter is painting here is he's reminding them of what happened to Israel. Remember, we're dealing with a small minority church in Asia. They're suffering persecution. They're facing social ridicule. They're wondering, who am I? And Peter tells the church, enter into Israel's story. Take on their identity. You see, Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And as they were slaves in Egypt and they called out to their God, God remembered the promise he made to Abraham. And so these physical descendants of Abraham, God chooses to be his. And he sends Moses to deliver them from slavery. And as they're walking in the wilderness, in Exodus 19, God says, now you're no longer slaves. 
You are my people. I have chosen this race to be a holy nation, my treasured possession. It's important for Israel at that time to know who they were, to know who their God was, to know that they belonged to this God. And so Peter tells this church, take on that identity. And what I find interesting is that Peter uses terminology that has to do with Israel as a race. They are a chosen race. Now, I find this interesting because think of how we use race in normal life. When we talk about race, that's usually one of the issues of what makes us who we are. It's one way we identify ourselves. We belong to this kind of people, and that might be physical features, it might be a nation we're from, it could be a culture, but it's a way we identify ourselves. It's a way we find our belonging. And so if we ask who are we, sometimes we think of who we are based on where we're from and the kind of people that look similar to us. I find this as very important in distinguishing us versus them. In Asia, I travel around to many different countries, and what I realize is that almost every country in Asia, at least the ones that I've been in, have a term for foreigners. In Thailand, it's parang, which means French. So whether you're French or not, if you're from a Western country, you are French in Thailand. <laughs> now that term in itself is not derogatory. When they call me French, I'm not offended by that, right? But it's interesting how they use that. So as I'm walking around in the, the market, and you know, I pick up a little bit of Thai, but I don't understand all of it, but I always hear the word farang. And then I know, oh, they're talking about me. <laughs> you see, I'm not a, really a person. I'm not Jim. I'm not Thai. I am farang. Now, even though it might not always carry negative connotations, it does distinguish the Thais from me. And I'll tell you what it conveys, I will never be Thai, right? Other countries have similar terminology. In Singapore, it was Ang Mo, which means redhead. Now, I don't have red hair, but I was Ang Mo anyway. And the same thing. You know, you'd go around and you'd hear Ang Mo, and you know, oh, okay, they're talking about me. In China, Lao Wai, old foreigner. And some of them can get pretty nasty, but I won't go into those. <laughs> So why do they do that? Why do they create these terms for outsiders? Well, really, it's an issue of identity, isn't it? That they uh, highlight issues of race, of culture, of ethnicity, of nationality, and that's what makes us us. And so these other people are them, right? We all do that. We all have ideas of who we are and who they are whoever the they is. Well, what makes this interesting is look at what Peter is doing here. By using terms that were used of Israel, very literally, they were a race, they were a nation, right? But he applies it to a primarily Gentile audience. A group in Asia made up of multiple different races and ethnicities and backgrounds. So really by using this term, here's what he's doing. First of all, he's erasing the barriers we put up within the church. He's saying, first of all, 
that we no longer make an us versus them based on our racial descent. He says there is no place for racial prejudice within the church. So we certainly have diversity and we can celebrate diversity. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is the diversity does not separate us. It does not create an us versus them within the church. But while Peter does say that, he's also drawing a new boundary. And where is he drawing the boundary lines between us and them? Who is the chosen race? It's believers, right? So what he's telling this church made up of all these different ethnicities and races and nationalities and backgrounds is that within the church, those differences do not make you who you are. What makes you who you are is that you are in Christ. You belong to God, right? So that's a new boundary line. He's drawing a boundary around the chosen people, the people of God, the holy nation, Christians. And that's what makes us different from those on the outside. Well, for me, this is just entirely an important concept for us. In fact, in the early church, they built upon Peter's idea of racial terminology. In the third and fourth centuries, some of the early theologians talked about Christians as being a third race. Now, Jews believed there were two races of people. You know what they are? Jews and Gentiles. It's a very ethnocentric way of viewing the world. There's us and then everyone else. (laughs) Well, the Christians struggled with that because they said, well, we're not really Jews. Even though some of us used to be Jewish and that's our ethnicity and that's our background and we have a Jewish Old Testament and a Jewish Messiah, really, we're not really Jews. But on the other hand, we're not really Gentiles either, even though some of us used to be Gentiles. So what are we? We're a third race, a new kind of people. We are Christians. Isn't that interesting? So he's kind of using the same kind of thinking that Peter was using here in chapter 2 of using race to describe the church. Of course, Peter says this, this race of people entails that we belong together and we have a job to do. Look at verse 9 again. It says we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a missionary dimension of this race. Usually when you talk about race, you can't enter a race, right? Races are closed off. Either you're born that way or you're not. But for the Christian race, the boundaries are permeable. They're porous. In other words, we are a missionary race. We go out to all the world, to every tribe, tongue, and language, and we say to them, join the chosen race. Come, join us. We're reaching out. We're an outward-focused race. Well, I find that this is incredibly important for us. As we think about what the church is and how we think of the church as being global. Because many times in our mind, and the way that we act, we only think of the church as local. We get together with people who have similarities with us, mostly in terms of 
their culture, their background, their food, their likes, their dislikes. We like to be around people who are similar. That's kind of a natural thing for humans. But what Peter is saying here is that if we're going to stand against a society that's against us, and this church is certainly feeling that, is we have to be unified together, even within our diversity. I find that it's very interesting, as you remember, in the Gospels, as Jesus is teaching his disciples. And somebody comes up on the outside and says, Jesus, your mother and your brother are out there waiting for you. Do you remember what Jesus said? Who was my mother? Who is my brother? And then he pauses, I think, for effect. And he looks around to the people he's teaching. And he says, these are my mother's and my brothers, and my sisters. You know what Jesus is doing there? See, I've always struggled with that story because I love my family. And I'm sure you do too. Is Jesus saying that we should abandon our families and that our families are meaningless once you become a Christian? No, he's not saying that. But what he's doing is he's redrawing the boundary line. Who are you? Are you, first of all, the son or daughter of your parents? Are you, first of all, the brother or sister of your siblings? Are you the father of your children or the mother of your children? Is that, first of all, who you are? That's not, first of all, who you are. Your first and primary identity is as belonging to the people of God. These are your mothers and your brothers and your sisters. That's a paradigm shift, isn't it? And so Jesus is doing the same thing that Peter is doing here, redrawing the boundary lines of who makes us. Well, this is, of course, incredibly important for ABTS because we have committed our lives and this ministry to helping the global church, to not seeing each other as primarily based on their race or ethnicity or background, but seeing them as believers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why South Church has such a great missions program and why you have somebody from Asia up here preaching this morning. But I think there's a great application here for the American church. I was uh, in Chiang Mai at my church just a few months ago and I met an American and we got talking and he told me, he says, I feel like America is changing so rapidly that when I get back it'll be a foreign country. And I'm just nodding in agreement because I totally understand what he's saying. And I said, oh, how long have you been gone? And he said, six months. <laughs> well, I've been gone 12 years, so I certainly feel it as well. But you know what's interesting to me? Is as I go around from church to church and I talk to Christians who live in America, they feel the same way. They feel like they live in a foreign country more and more. What's happening to society? And we just heard about it this morning, another more events this week. And we start to wonder, what is God doing? And as I talk to Christians, I feel there's a little bit of a feeling of despair, of a lack of hope, perhaps, or at least feeling marginalized. Like Christians are being pushed aside and society's going in a completely different direction. You know, that's very similar to the way the early church felt. 
The church that Peter is writing to was just a small band of people. And all around them was a society whose values did not align with theirs. They were marginalized. So the identity of who we are is how do you struggle as a marginalized people in a society that's against you? And Peter's answer is, you come together. You join together with others, members of your race. Now this is, of course, within the church, South Church, being together. This, of course, is within Lansing and Michigan of Christians joining together. But this is much bigger than that. This has to do with the church global. And I'll tell you a story of how this really impacted me the most. About five years ago, I was in South India in the city of Chennai. And I was there uh, as a guest of one of my friends who was doing a ministry there among the Dalit people. The Dalits are the untouchable caste of India. They are the lowest of the low, and in Hindu thinking, they're there because of their karma. They deserved it. So there's really no help for them. They're poor, they have no opportunities, and they cannot climb the ladder of success. My friend has a ministry among them and has started a church. During the week uh, while I was there, we would visit members of the church. And I remember visiting some members who live in one small room, which barely fit a single bed, and that's where they lived, and their kitchen was underneath the bed. They'd pull out a stove, take it outside, and do their cooking, and that was their life. And as I visited all these people, and I came to church on Sunday, and I looked out as they asked me to preach, and I looked out to people, the ladies sitting on the left and the men sitting on the right, and I looked at their faces, and I remembered where they lived and the experiences they have had. And I thought to myself, you know what? I cannot think of anybody whose experiences are more different than my own. Economically, culturally, physically, just in every way possible. They are as different from me as it gets. <laughs> and when I got up there and I started preaching, and I'm thinking to myself, what do I say? I looked at their faces and I said, I have more in common with you than I do with non-Christian Americans. Do you believe that's true? You see, when you look at it in human terms, culturally, ethnically, racially, economically, we are as different as it comes. <laughs> but when you look at it spiritually, our first identity is as Christians. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mothers. And for me, that was a radical shift in the way I viewed the world. I'm not first of all an American. I'm not even first of all a son or a husband or a father, even though those are very important. I am first of all a child of God. And that makes me members of a chosen race of people. I have a relation to you, even though I've never met you before, that goes deeper than blood. And if we can get our mind around that, it opens up the global community and what we're supposed to be doing in missions. But even more than that, it helps us deal with being marginalized in a society that's increasingly becoming non-Christian. Our hope is in Christ, and if you look through Scripture, that hope is found in a community of people, the chosen race.
Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have chosen us. We are the least deserving. So we know that we're not necessarily better than others because we're chosen. We do that only because of your grace. You have chosen us as your special treasured possession. But Lord, not, that's not just me as an individual being chosen. It's not just us being chosen as individuals, but we're brought together into a community of people. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that spans not only here in Lansing, but beyond into the whole wide world as where we're connected with churches around the globe. What an exciting truth. How awesome is it that we can experience that even now, but we look forward to heaven when we're all together and we're singing God's praises from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We can celebrate diversity, but at the same time, we are united in Christ. Father, may you continue to help us to think properly about this and to join together so that we can be built up together in Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.